Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor at EdSurge. So as most listeners probably know, there are these free online courses known as MOOCs, or Massive Open Online Courses. And some of them are blockbusters. One of the most popular, for example, is a course called The Science of Well-Being by Yale University professor Lori Santos. So I said these are blockbusters. That doesn't quite capture how big we're talking. When I checked in this week, the system said that some 3.7 million people have registered for this course since it was created a couple years ago. 3.7 million registrations. This particular course, it's about the science of happiness, which it's a fascinating idea. It's, it's been covered in a lot of TED Talks and in best-selling books. And this course even promises some self-help. And we thought that it might be so beneficial to Yale students, we wanted to bring it to a bigger group. That's Lori Santos in the introductory lecture for the MOOC. You get a chance to watch these short lectures on the science of happiness, but also to think about how to develop these practices in your own life. We hope you enjoy it. So the lectures for these MOOCs, and most of the materials, are free of charge. But only if you create an account on the platform that offers the course, which in this case is Coursera. In other words, the only way to get to the material inside is to enter the walled garden of this online course provider by signing up. You might be thinking, all right, what's the big deal about that? Lots of sites, of course, do require you to log in to get the content. Well, one pioneer of online education argues that locking these courses inside a registration wall, even a free one, is holding back the potential of online learning. That expert is Stephen Downs. And he made that argument in a recent online presentation that he posted to his website and newsletter, OL Daily, or Online Learning Daily. I was curious about his presentation and this argument. So I connected with Downs to hear more. One of the first slides in the presentation was a collage of all of these registration forms. And I looked at all the information that they're asking for from participants. And it's a lot. Uh, it's way more than is needed from my uh, perspective in order to offer open online learning. Um, you know, names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, passport numbers, photographs, uh, and the list goes on. This is a carryover, not just from uh, the idea of commercialization, but also the idea of traditional educational practice. I mean, before the internet, before anything of this, when we went to university, we would have to apply for admission. We'd have to give all of this information over to the university, along with transcripts and proof that we were real people and, and all the rest of it. And that was just part of the process. And so that thinking has carried over. You know, you offer education, this is what you do. Um, the commercialization takes that up a notch because all of this information now is a commodity that can be used for a wide variety of purposes. And, you know, for the, the actual commercial MOOCs, 
which is, of course, a contradiction in terms, practically. Uh, one of the first things that they're going to use this information for is for billing purposes. Because people aren't worried about qualification for admissions anymore when we're talking about open online courses. There are very few of those actually demand a transcript or your high school graduation diploma or anything like that. Um, for the very good reason that there's no reason to do so. MOOCs are, or they were, free. Uh, you can join one, drop out any time. It's a zero-risk proposition for both the people offering the MOOC and the people taking the MOOC. So there's no real need to make sure somebody would be able to complete the course. Uh, people can figure out pretty quickly for themselves whether they complete the course and they haven't risked anything, so they haven't lost anything if they drop out. There is a reason that these MOOC providers, including Coursera, require sign-ins, though. The courses are essentially a free trial. And the companies want to upsell learners to pay for things like a certificate to prove they completed the course, or services like live people to answer questions about the material. So the first argument Downs makes is they just collect more information than is needed. But he says there's also a bigger issue. The downside is it changes the relation between the student and the institution. Uh, Right off the bat, you know, if you go to take a course and the first thing you see is uh, a sign-in barrier, right off the bat, the relationship between the institution and you has been established as a power relationship. That form says, we are the ones in charge. You will do what we ask you to do. Sign fill in your name, do this, right? Um, uh, your access to this course is contingent on our continued generosity. And locking these courses in a walled garden also limits how much other professors can adopt them in their own teaching and might keep students from finding these videos to help them in their own learning, say if they're taking some other course on the same subject. If you put a registration barrier in front of course resources, you're making it the case that the only way somebody can access those course resources is to go through and register for it, which means that there's no linking of these resources, there's no sharing of these resources, there's no real resource of these or reuse of these resources in other courses. Uh, you know, just throwing something up on YouTube. I can, and in fact I do, embed that in my course, no problem. Throw the same thing up in something that requires a subscription wall, and it's locked in there. To be fair, it's a bit more nuanced. In researching this episode, I found that some Coursera lectures, they are on YouTube as well. Including some of the ones by Lori Santos, that we heard at the top of the episode. But not all of the videos are out there on YouTube. And the clips that are seem to exist sometimes to promote signing up for the MOOC, not to be useful as a standalone resource. Now, there's something important about Downs that I haven't mentioned yet. He's not just any expert about online learning. He actually co-taught the very first MOOC, the free open course that inspired the founders of Coursera and other companies like him. That course that he co-taught sparked the whole industry that he's actually now not so crazy about. That's because he says he was going for a different spirit. So I asked him to take us back to when he did work on that first MOOC. 
Yeah, sure. So back in the day, by that we mean 2008, which is only 13 years ago, if you can imagine that. Um, and uh, the course was called Connectivism and Connective Knowledge. I offered it with George Siemens and then various other people, including especially Dave Cormier, came along for the ride to help out. And uh, uh, basically, the year before, George had offered uh, a conference on uh, an online conference on connectivism. Uh, Remind people spoke. what connectivism is. I think a lot <laughs> of people will know it. But yeah, so connectivism is the theory that knowledge consists of the connections between entities. Um, and that learning is the creation and adjustment of these connections. Most notably, uh, the connections that we're talking about are neural connections, the connections between our neurons, because our neurons are cells in the brain that link to each other. And these connections grow, shape, and form as we learn. And it's this growth, shaping, and forming that actually is the learning that a human undertakes. But you also see the same sort of thing happening in artificial neural networks, which used to be called connectionist systems. Notice the difference in term. Um, and we also see the same sort of learning happen in other kinds of connected systems, for example, social networks or even society at large. So our conference was about that and about using that kind of idea as a learning theory. And bracket by theory, I'm just using that loosely, we could argue. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, it was widely attended. It's a huge conference, uh, very popular. But we faced the common problem because connectivism is a, a theory that we were both working on at the time. Nobody understood what we were talking about. Nobody. Um, well, that's not true. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but people didn't get it, uh, even after an entire conference of trying to explain it. So George and I were sitting at uh, a conference in Memphis, and uh, we decided, you know what we should do? We should have an online course. And that was the first thought. And then the second thought, which came a little bit later, but not much later, was that, and this course shouldn't just talk about connectivism, it should be connectivist. And so that's what we did. Uh, we, we set up the course. Uh, we set up a bunch of different things. Uh, George set up a Moodle installation. We set up some discussion boards. I used an application that I wrote called Grasshopper, and I still use that to this day, uh, to uh, manage the mailing list, uh, collect subscriptions, harvest resources from different people's blogs. In other words, to make the course a connectivist course. We expected, you know, 20 people, whatever. We got 2,200 people. And uh, Dave Cormier, in conversation with Brian Alexander, sometime around then, called it a massive open online course, or MOOC. Um, and the name stuck. That was unheard of at that time. Unheard of, that yeah. That many people to be in the same online course. Yeah. I mean, you might get them in a mailing list where uh, a series of emails uh, was called a course. And that, was, that predated us by like 10 years. Uh, I remember taking, a, a, you know, an open mailing list course on Welcome to the Internet. <laughs> 
uh, back in the 90s. I was, you know, so, but this was different. It was more like a course, particularly in that it wasn't just a broadcast, but we were really promoting and stimulating all the interaction and conversation, etc., that you would expect in a course. We were creating that, but for 2,200 people. And I think that's the part that was unprecedented. And it did inspire, it got written about a little bit, um, and it did inspire, including I, I remember doing an article um, back when I was at the Chronicle of Higher Education at the time. So, but it got, it also got the attention of some other professors um, who um, did a different kind of approach to teaching broadly, right? Um well, Norvig and Thrun, particularly. Uh, Sebastian with, Thrun and, and Peter yeah. Norvig uh, at Stanford University. That's right, with their AI course in uh, 2011. And that attracted, I think it was, the number was 160,000 people, although I've heard you know, estimates plus or minus 100,000. So um, Needless to say, it was another order of magnitude larger, and that really caught the public attention, not surprisingly. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that um, that model that um, that Thrun, which he later started a company called Udacity, it still offers, you know, I think this is now like a billion dollar plus valued company offering online courses that are kind of very professional oriented. Um it sparked also, you know, um, inspired Coursera um, and other Stanford professors who also had these mega courses on uh, and that have started uh, companies. Um, and now this whole, you know, sector is, is again, another billion dollar company. Coursera is traded on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, it's almost, it's almost, um, you know, even though these companies said they were ambitious and wanted to be that, it, it I think a lot of people at the time would have, been you know disbelief that that could be you know the case that 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 would happen um so i guess what what do you see as let's fast forward a little bit to now um where where do you feel like the idea of you know that there was a, a big boom in like attention to this idea with those companies but more recently, I feel like you don't hear as much about about MOOCs, and still a lot of people don't know that term, even after all these years, thirteen years um, or more. Um, what what do you? Um, where are we now with this idea of having um, wide scale online courses? Well, it's it's been uh, you know a constant increase in the number of courses the number of people taking these courses and the number of providers, it's been a steady increase since 2008. So it doesn't really matter what the media says about, you know, whether it talks about them at all or whether it says they're alive or dead. Uh, the facts uh, speak to a constant increase over time, especially the provider thing. And I think that's worth highlighting. Um, in the years that followed... Uh, 2008, I worked with various organizations, uh, including, for example, uh, the Arab League, which was working on an Arabic MOOC platform. Uh, I talked with a number of people in various countries, um, some Spanish-speaking uh, MOOC initiatives. 
And we're seeing all of these platforms. I, I actually offered a MOOC with something called EMMA, the U European Multiple MOOC Aggregator, based in Naples. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it didn't have 100,000 people in it, obviously. But the thing is, there are all of these other platforms. Uh, uh, I can't pronounce the Chinese one, but it's Zioteng Zing, or I can't pronounce it. There are all of these providers, and the media naturally focused, because this is what the media does, on the high-profile institutions, Stanford, MIT, uh, Harvard, which they came out with edX, uh, the Open University in Britain, which came out with FutureLearn. Uh, so they focused on high-profile institutions and commercial initiatives, uh, which, again, is what the media loves, and pretty much ignored all of the rest of them. All of the rest of them are much more than just these institutions, um, in my view. All this got me thinking. What if these courses had evolved without registration walls? That kind of seems like a radical thing these days when so many sites have logins. But it actually wasn't so crazy to imagine back in the early 2000s. I was reminded of that when I checked in with another professor who co-taught that same MOOC with Downs. That person is George Siemens, who's a professor and the executive director of the Learning Innovation and Networked Knowledge Research Lab at the University of Texas at Arlington. For background, there's the free software movement. You know, Richard Stallman led. He had a certain type of a personality that not everyone responded to favorably. And then a group of individuals ended up initiating what's now known as sort of the open source software movement. Free software was basically this view that it's almost criminal to charge for software. And the ethos at the time was you write code, you share it with others. And, uh, but, but he, so he didn't have, he didn't envision a place where there was sort of a for-profit aspect to software because the replication costs of software are nearly zero. Like it's one thing to say, you know, I've got to grow a field of corn and I have to pay people to tend to it. I have to have input costs. And then I go out and I, I harvest it. Yeah. If I, you know, one, bushel of corn, I have no idea what a bushel is, but one bushel of corn. I don't either. <laughs> one bushel has input costs, two bushels has comparable input costs. With software, though, one copy has a cost. The second copy has almost zero cost to duplicate it because you don't have comparable input costs for that second copy. And so that was his vision that this should be just basically free because software has a very low duplication cost. But there, unfortunately, there was you know a large group that was interested in making money off of software. And so this group sort of came out, kept some of the mindsets of free software, but entered the open source software movement. And But they allowed more commercial activity in that framework, but they, they wanted software still be shareable and freely available. And then Eric Raymond published a pretty prominent paper called The Cathedral in the Bazaar, which was basically not, not like an academic paper, but, you know, but published a, more or less a manifesto that just said, hey, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We can create interesting outputs by, without being centrally managed, but we let a group of people sort of loosely coordinate with a loose organizing structure, and we can create this amazing software that you know, powers the vast majority of the internet. Siemens reminded me that the big buzzword in education back then was something called open courseware, which MIT had made a big commitment to. In fact, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the launch of MIT OpenCourseWare. The idea was that professors would make the raw materials of their courses, like their lecture notes and tests and sometimes videos of their teaching, available for free download on the university's website. 
It was just the material. They weren't promising any credit. But the idea was that if these materials existed anyway, if professors had created the lecture notes and videos, why not freely share them with no strings attached? And so there's thinkers like David Wiley at the time was advancing the same idea that there's zero production costs for subsequent copies of curriculum. A textbook has the same production cost, a physical textbook. The, the 500th version has comparable cost to create as the first version, uh, you know, in terms of the physical cost of the book, whereas software and curriculum doesn't have that. So at that time, MIT went out and there was a lot of attention being paid to open courseware. MIT really accelerated it, much like they did with MOOCs. They, they sort of recognize a trend. And, and we, we know this with a lot of these top systems. Like, it's not that the best ideas come out of MIT and Stanford and Harvard. It's that the best instantiation of ideas by activating the media outlets produces them as leads. You know, much like MOOCs were not a initiated with Stanford or Harvard or MIT, but they sort of get the credit for it because when they show up, they show up with like $60 million to launch edX, right? And so the same happened with OpenCourseWare. There was a lot of work being done with OpenCourseWare well before MIT showed up. And it, admittedly with Stallman and others, they were a significant home, but they they really launched it because they had it and uh, they put funds to it. They had an organizational level strategy to deploy it, initiate it. And it was, it, like you said, it received fantastic recognition in media really around the world. And there's individuals that would come by and take MIT's open courseware and translate it into, say, Chinese and launch versions of it in their local countries. I remember speaking with one individual who basically became a millionaire off of translating open courseware into China, uh, into Chinese for deployment there. So there's a it was a huge deal. And it would basically, they didn't, they would make the curriculum available. They wouldn't necessarily have the pedagogical aspects of fostering social interactions in, in, involved freely available online, but they would definitely include the content, some video lectures, readings, and so on. Everything was available open uh, that uh, for groups that were the faculty that joined this particular initiative. What wasn't available and what we tried to do with the first MOOC was the instructional support or guidance that fostered interaction around the curriculum. And if I now this is the part where I don't even remember it well enough. Do you, do you remember whether it was, you had to have like a password or registration as a student to get to the material or could you just go on a website and grab it? You could, you could go and grab Like this is one of the things at the time it was, we were sort of a little moment of euphoria where we weren't trying to optimize and track users. In fact, the internet as a whole, like there was a time where you could use Google and just search and it wouldn't try and track everything you're doing. And so I, I you know, I think that was, that was the pre-optimizing click stage that we now see in every aspect of our online interactions. But yeah, at the time, you could go and just access resources and and, and uh, view them without having created an account. It was really a, a lovely period, I think, where we had, sometimes you have vision that predates the capability to achieve it, right, technologically. Other times you have the technology, but the lack of vision. And so we, we hit this sweet spot at that time for a period of you know, certainly, you know, almost a decade and the whole web 2.0 uh, ethos was sort of part of that. But we hit this sweet spot where we had a vision for what education could be like. And we had a group of people sort of furiously sharing and creating and engaging and, you know, running open courses outside of the edX and uh, Coursera banner at that stage, at least. A lot of that has, has sort of changed now to key optimization and there's revenue streams that are available and there's profs that are making more money teaching on Coursera than they're ever going to make in their regular faculty job. And so it's a different reality, 
but it, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a neat little period, almost sort of a, this, this frenzied explosion of creativity in digital learning. And I've said this recently, a number of keynotes I've done over the last year is I don't think we've absorbed the lessons of web 2.0 in our institutions. I still think everything we're doing is still trying to process the idea of participatory pedagogical models where students have greater control, uh, where yeah, faculty are, are less prominent, if you will, than they might be in a classroom and where you really have the effects of a global classroom. So we're still trying to process what that meant. And I think in some ways, we haven't aligned our institutions to that reality yet, even though I think in some cases there's indications we might be a little bit, but with such a heavily regulated interconnected system that you can't really do dramatic broad scale innovation. What are the lessons now that maybe forgotten lessons, you know, about what you learned by doing that first MOOC, right? That, that you would like to see resurfaced in this time of, like I said, uh, Coursera IPOs and, and, and huge investments in what has become of the MOOC space. That's a, that's a fantastic question. I, I think um, really a return to a couple things. One, I do think a participatory pedagogical model where, you know, where we're driving the, the ability for learners to connect with and engage with one another. And there, there's ample evidence and, and, you know, literature and certainly in learning sciences that emphasizes the value of that kind of engaged pedagogical model for effective longer-term learning. I asked Stephen Downs that same question of what he sees as the lesson from the free online courses and materials that were more open back in the day. The, the main lesson is there's a wide demand for open online learning. Uh, you don't have a phenomenon with millions of people without being able to say there's a wide demand. So we, we know people want this. Uh, they want to be able to learn about things online. Uh, I think that if we looked at um, accesses or engagement or whatever between resources that require a login and resources that don't, that the engagement of resources that don't is much larger. Um, and we, we can see that just by looking at as- access statistics for YouTube. Um, I'm a devotee of history videos um, on YouTube. That's one of the things. There's various other things, um, you know, uh, Sterling engines. I'm a, you give me a Sterling engine video and I'm a sucker for it. Um, or, you know, how to repair your bicycles, also big with me. And then, you know, how to do things like uh, bike packing or mountain biking, um, which I did last summer and it was awesome. Uh, so, and I look at, you know, I always look at how many people have watched this video. And typically, you know, your, your, your short little video, 10 minute video, or even half hour, hour long videos, which many of these are, hundreds of thousands of views. Um, so, and again, you know, that's the side of open online learning that never makes it to the press because A, it's not being offered by an educational institution and B, it's not commercial. It's worth noting, though, that George Siemens, who co-taught that first course with Downs, does see some benefit in having a registration process. In other words, he's not totally against it. 
I don't think there's any reason why you can't have both. But I do think in the long run, um, we benefit, even if we're doing a simple search on the web, we benefit from our search history because that'll determine the kind of results that we're going to see. And in a learning lens, I think it's no different. So in some way, as uncomfortable as it may make people feel, I do think that the algorithm is a teaching agent and that does require a profile or an identity. This actually might be a really good time to talk about the future of free online courses. Earlier this year, Harvard and MIT and other creators of edX agreed to sell their nonprofit MOOC platform to a for-profit company called 2U. As a result, $800 million from the sale will go to forging a new nonprofit tasked with the mission of, quote, reimagining the future of learning for people at all stages of life, addressing educational inequities, and continuing to advance next-generation learning experiences and platforms. And some leaders are currently having brainstorming meetings about what this super well-funded nonprofit will actually do and what it's going to support. Maybe this is another chance to reset the rules and expectations of how colleges freely share their knowledge with the world. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Every week... We bring you audio stories like this one. If you like the show, please subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen. And while you're at it, please take a minute to leave us a rating or a review. And you can also sign up for our free EdSurge podcast newsletter. That will send you an email every time we have a new episode and includes bonus links and resources if you want to dive deeper into the topics we tackle. I have to mention, though, that signing up for the newsletter, it does require a quick registration process. But you can always listen to this podcast audio without signing up for anything. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Or email me at jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode by Revolution Void. That track is called Scattered Knowledge. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.